My name is Scott Gilliland. I'm one of the associate pastors here at Lover's Lane. I'm glad that you're worshiping with us this morning, along with my wife, Reagan, who's not here this morning. She's teaching a Sunday school class. We co-pastor this worship community that we call Thrive. So I'm glad that you've taken time this morning to come up here and worship with us. I want to thank our worship team. I want to thank Dee Dee for your leadership in our worship. I'm one of those people that doesn't sing too good, and you've taught me the value of singing out during worship. So let's give our worship team a hand this morning. Because, y'all, we've come a long way in six months when it comes to singing. If you were here six months ago, say amen. That's right. That's right. You could hear a pin drop during worship six months ago. Um, we were really good listeners, we would say. Um, so I, I'm thankful for the story that Stan just shared. We, if this is your first week with us, or if it's your first week in a few weeks and you're kind of wondering what we're doing, this sermon series we're engaged in is seven weeks long. And, and for the first three weeks, and this is the third week of the series, so this is the, the last part of this part of the series, for these first three weeks, we've been looking at the history of Lover's Lane. We've been looking at the stories that are part of who we are, that have shaped us and guided us to become the church who we are today. And so two weeks ago, uh, Stan preached in Thrive, and, and he talked about the story of Tom Ship, our first full-time pastor at Lover's Lane. He talked about Tom Ship's personal story of growing up an orphan boy in Missouri, and then also his pastoral story of bringing a ministry to alcoholics to this young house church called Lover's Lane, back when it was literally in a house on Lover's Lane. So um, this, that sort of as this foundational story of who we are and welcoming in the people who are made to feel unwelcome. Then last week we flash forward to 1961 when we invited the first African American to join our church. And her name was Miss Bernice Johnson. And, and Bernice's story uh, is one that at the time didn't end happy but has propelled us into becoming the church that we are today that recognizes and celebrates all cultures, all tribes, all peoples, all nations. This week, we're going to talk about the story of Dr. Bill Bryan and when he baptized uh, two openly gay men's daughters, uh, infant daughters, on Christmas Eve uh, a little over 20 years ago and, and how that led to some conflict uh, within our church. It, there is a D Magazine article written about our church at the time. You can go online and look it up if you want to. Um, it's a difficult part of our story. And yet if you look around at who we are today, you can tell that we're a far cry from where, maybe where we were 20 years ago. 20 years ago, we were a, a Preston Hollow church that looked a lot like Preston Hollow and, and was very comfortable in the way that we were doing ministry. And all of our worship happened in the traditional sanctuary. Um, there wasn't anything happening in Asbury Hall. There wasn't, in, there wasn't even a ship chapel um, to have Heart of Africa. We didn't have a parlor room for Zimbabwe worship or, or the foundry, any of those kinds of things. Um, it was a different kind of church back then. So how did we get from a church that was so uncomfortable with the concept of infant girls whose dads were openly gay being baptized. How do we get from that to now 20 years later who we are today? T take a moment and, and look around the room for a second. Take a moment, look around. This doesn't look like the church that Stan's talking about from 20 years ago. How did we get there? That's the message today that I want to talk about. And to help us understand that, we're like every message, we're going to root ourselves in Scripture this morning. We're going to look at two Scriptures from the Apostle Paul. Uh, Paul was a cornerstone leader in the early Christian church. And most of the New Testament, much of the New Testament writings are written by Paul. They're letters that he wrote as pastoral letters to churches that he was helping to guide and raise up in the Mediterranean area following Jesus' ascension into heaven and the establishment of the early church. The first letter we're going to look at is the letter to the Galatians. The church in Galatia, here's what you need to know about it before we pray and read our scripture. 
the church in Galatia was a very diverse church. Uh, it, it was, it was the city, Galatia, where there were a lot of crossroads and a lot of cultures that were mixing, a lot of faith traditions that were mixing. And, and so when the Christian church begins to develop, you've got this, this, um, this sect of Jewish Christians that are, that are sort of the cornerstone of that church. And they've got really strong opinions about what it means to be Christian and what it means to uphold the tradition of their Jewish heritage. And then you've got this entire enormously uh, huge com- uh, community of Gentiles, as we say, the, everyone who's not Jewish, the, the Greeks and the, every other uh, community that was living in Galatia at the time. You, you've got all of these different cultures that have no understanding of the Jewish tradition, and they don't understand the importance of it. They don't really get why anybody needs to care a thing about Judaism to follow Jesus. And so then you've got some conflict. You've got a church that's incredibly diverse where people don't seem to agree about how they're supposed to be the church, and there's conflict. Does that sound familiar in 2017? This is the beautiful thing about Scripture is it continues to be true year after year, decade after decade, millennia after millennia. So with all that in mind, let's pray together before we read our first Scripture this morning. Gracious God, as we prepare to hear from your Apostle Paul, And the words that he had for a church 2,000 years ago. Help us to hear this message for ourselves. Help us to hear this letter as a letter to Lover's Lane in 2017, just as it was a letter to a church in Galatia so long ago. God challenged us this morning. Grant us extra doses of your love and your grace and your patience and your mercy. Keep us all walking humbly in your will. Amen. Paul says this, Now, before faith came, he says, we were imprisoned and guarded under the law until faith would be revealed. Therefore, the law was our disciplinarian until Christ came. So let's stop for a second. When he says the law... Maybe you're wondering what, what, what's the, like the, like the laws of the land. No, so the law was this Old Testament concept. It, it was sort of two things at once. It, it, at one, in one way, it was sort of this abstract idea of this sort of way of living that was going to make you righteous in the eyes of God. It was this idea that if you live the right way, if you carry yourself the right way, if you do the right things as a faithful person, then, then you'll be righteous in the eyes of God. And then in a, in a less abstract, more concrete way, it was this list of rules that are laid out in the Old Testament books of like Deuteronomy and Leviticus and Numbers. It's this list of rules, over 600 of them, that a good Jew was supposed to keep. And that if you lived according to this list of rules, and that was going to make you righteous in the eyes of God. So he says, therefore the law was our disciplinarian, meaning the law is what guided our rule of life. The law is what told us how to live faithfully until Christ came, so that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer subject to a disciplinarian, for in Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith. As many of you as were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male and female. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So Paul's addressing a community that is incredibly diverse, that disagrees about what they're supposed to do and how they're supposed to be in the church. And, and ultimately, the question they're wrestling is, with is, what does it mean to be Christian? 
What does it mean to be Christian? In a concrete way, what he's addressing in Galatia, there's this really real issue of, do we expect males to be circumcised or not? And we're not getting into that today. That's another sermon for another Sunday. But that's the way the theology works. Theology always starts way up here. And eventually it makes its way down to earth. It starts way up in the clouds, up in that headspace that academics and people like me that are just nerds about it, we love to talk about it. But eventually it's got to make it down to the earth and there's some real life-changing things that happen based upon what we believe. And so in, in the church in Galatia, one of those down-to-earth issues was, do we expect these adult Gentile men to become circumcised? Because the Jewish faith says that you have to be circumcised as a man. So if you're going to be Christian, do you have to be circumcised? So this is what Paul's addressing in the letter to the Galatians. And what he does is he develops this nuanced theology. He begins this nuanced theology. Keep in mind, none of this was spelled out for them. The, the Christian church was not handed a book of dogma and doctrine when they began. These leaders were having to figure this stuff out for themselves. So he begins to develop this theology that that says this, at at the same time, we are going to uplift the Jewish tradition. He says, you know, Abraham's promise is going to be made real. I'm going to uplift the Jewish tradition, the Jewish promise, the Jewish heritage. But I'm also going to acknowledge the fact that the, the literal law, the concrete rule book law, is not going to apply to every context that we find the Christian church in. Not every Gentile is going to need to put themselves underneath the law because if we do that, then we're forgetting the whole purpose of Christ. There's something about Christ that honors the tradition, honors the heritage, honors the promise, but moves it forward and takes it into places that we could not expect and tries to make it less about concrete rules and more about this living faith that we're supposed to develop with God. Paul puts it this way. He says that our disciplinarian, meaning not the one who tells us that we're wrong, but disciplinarian meaning the one who gives us our life's discipline, the way that we conduct ourselves in life. It's no longer this law. It's no longer the Old Testament books. It's no longer the 600-some-odd rules that we had laid out for so many years. Instead, what guides our way of living, what guides our faithful living is now Christ Jesus himself. Now, that's a big shift. That's a big shift for those who are, who are traditional Jews and, and are saying, wait a second, I've been raised my whole life to believe that these rules are important. I've been raised my whole life to believe that these rules are what's going to get me into heaven. I've been raised my whole life to believe that these rules define whether or not I'm righteous in the eyes of God. And Paul is challenging them in that moment to say, if you are still stuck on the rules, if you think the rules make your faith, if you think the rules make you righteous, if you think the rules change anything about you in the eyes of God, then we need to preach the gospel again because you've misunderstood the purpose of Jesus Christ. And yet at the same time to the Gentiles in the, in the Galatian culture, he's saying, if you think that you can understand who Christ Jesus is without understanding the story of Abraham, If you think you can understand what it means to follow Jesus, if you don't understand what it means to walk through the wilderness as the Israelites, then you're missing something. You're losing something. We need both of these things. We need to be in this sort of positive tension between the the tradition and upholding the tradition and also meeting in the new context and being relevant within new cultures. This is Paul. This is not 2017. This is year 50, right? Most importantly, I think Galatians, the letter to the Galatians, it serves as this warm-up act of sorts for Paul. 
Um, if you've studied the Bible at any length, then you may be familiar with the letter to the Romans is like Paul's masterpiece. It's one of his longest letters. It's got the most nuanced theology. Um, I mean, he is getting really into the heavy stuff in Romans. Um, but like the church in Galatia, the church in Rome is, is divided. And the reason they're divided is very simple. In Rome, there was a Caesar during the middle of the first century. And he cast out all of the Jews from Rome. Jews had to leave. And so the Christian church begins to develop in Rome during this time, but there are no Jewish Christians present to help guide and direct it. And so as you might imagine, it looks very different from other Christian churches in places where there are Jewish Christians present. It looks very different from the church in, say, Jerusalem, which is where a lot of these Jews probably would have traveled back to. So the church develops during a period of about 20 years, 15, 20 years. And then the new Caesar comes into power, and he says, you know what? Jews are welcome back in. So Jews come back into Rome. Jewish Christians come back into Rome. And of course, you're a Jewish Christian. You want to go find the local church, so you hop on the website. What's the local church to me? Oh, it's five miles away. Honey, that's a little far. We'll just sleep in. You know. Um, so they go and find the Christian church in Rome. And imagine, put yourself in the Jewish Christian's perspective. I mean, you've been going to church in Jerusalem, right? It looks very Jewish there. You come to Rome, and they haven't had any Jewish Christians for the last couple decades. And you walk in, and you see people eating pork. Now, you might giggle. <laughs> might sound goofy. But if you're a Jewish Christian, and you walk into God's holy house, and you see people claiming the name of Jesus Christ, and they are eating pork, you're not just, like, grossed out. You are offended at a deep level because that is a dietary restriction that their culture had not broken for centuries. And they're seeing it take place in the holy place of their Savior, their Messiah, their God, and their King. And so they... They flip a lid, man. They freak out. What is happening? This is not what church looks like. You are not being faithful Christians. You don't even know what it means to follow Jesus. How dare you lead the church in this direction? So the Roman church is this church that is becoming divided between a camp of traditionalists who don't think the church is honoring the tradition enough and a camp of these Gentile, we'll say progressivists, who don't understand the point of the flippant tradition to begin with. Does that sound familiar, church? <laughs> Again, the church hasn't changed that much in 2,000 years. So this is the community of faith that Paul writes to in the letter to the Romans. Now, there's some big, heady theology that he's addressing, right? Like, the big, heady stuff is, do we believe in the Old Testament and the New? And do we believe in Abraham and Moses? And are Gentiles covered under the promise of Abraham? And are they considered Israelites? Or is, are the Jews still specially chosen? And, okay, none of that is what we're going to talk about today. All of that theology is important. It's the first 13 chapters of Romans. It's good. Go read it when you get home. It's fantastic. Fine. But like I said, theology has a way of working its way down to the nitty-gritty, down-to-earth, rubber-meets-the-road stuff. And in the church in Rome, that rubber-meets-the-road stuff was pork. But it wasn't just pork. It was about how does our theology inform the way that we live faithfully, right? Because the pork wasn't just pork for Jewish Christians. It was an issue of living faithfully. So I say all that because we're going to read the chapter of Romans 14. I've cut a few parts out just to help it move along a little bit quicker. But you're gonna, we're going to read this, and you might be thinking, Scott, why in the world are you talking about pork today? 
Okay, it's not about pork. When he's writing about pork, what he's talking about is, is how do we live faithfully as Christians in this new kind of church that isn't tied to an Old Testament law anymore. And what Paul's going to lay out in chapter 14 is how a church that finds itself divided, that finds itself at war with itself, that finds itself in conflict over what does it mean to live faithfully as a Christian. Maybe that means you eat pork. Maybe that means you're two openly gay men getting your daughter baptized. How do we as a church resolve that conflict and walk through that together? Paul's going to lay it out for us in Romans 14. It's right there. Do you want to read it? Oh, good. I was hoping you would. Let's begin. Paul says, welcome the person who is weak in faith, but not in order to argue about differences of opinion. One person believes in eating everything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Those who eat must not look down on the ones who don't, and the ones who don't eat must not judge the ones who do because God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? They stand or fall because their own Lord, or before their own Lord, and they will stand because the Lord has the power to make them stand. We don't live for ourselves, and we don't die for ourselves, he says. If we live, we live for the Lord, and if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we belong to God. This is why Christ died and lived, so that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. But why do you judge your brother or sister, Paul says? Or why do you look down on your brother or sister? We will all stand in front of the judgment seat of God. Here he makes it very, very clear. Are you all ready to listen? I'm ready to listen. I need to hear this too. So stop judging each other. Paul likes long sentences, you'll find, if you read his letters. So when he does short ones... It's for a reason, right? So stop judging each other. Instead, this is what you should decide. Never put a stumbling block or obstacle in the way of your brother or sister. I know, and I'm convinced. So here he gets into his personal belief. I know, and I'm convinced, the Lord Jesus, that nothing is wrong to eat in itself. But if someone thinks something is wrong to eat, it becomes wrong for that person. If your brother or sister is upset by your food, you are no longer walking in love. Don't let your food destroy someone for whom Christ died. Let me read that a different way. Don't let your faithful living destroy someone for whom Christ has died. And don't let something you consider to be good be criticized as wrong. Don't let something you consider to be good be criticized as wrong. God's kingdom isn't about eating food and drinking but about righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Keep the belief that you have to yourself. It's between you and God. Paul was a postmodern thinker in the ancient era. What? He just described relativistic theory to us in the year 50. It's insane. That's why I know this text is God-inspired. People are blessed who don't convict themselves by the things they approve. But those who have doubts are convicted if they go ahead and eat because they aren't acting on the basis of faith. This is the big one. Pay attention. Everything that isn't based on faith is a sin. Everything that isn't based on faith is a sin. I didn't say everything that isn't based on the law 
everything that isn't based on your favorite scripture, everything that isn't based on the recent political talking point, everything that isn't based on that meme you read on Facebook, everything that isn't based on what your mom told you when you were growing, everything that isn't based on faith, full stop, faith, is a sin. That's important. Don't miss that in the scripture. Paul is spelling out to us how to resolve differences when it comes to the way that we practice our faith. I may have edited one line out, but there, there's a portion in this chapter where he's talking about not only are they arguing over food, they're also arguing over which day is the Sabbath and should they keep a Sabbath day. I mean, imagine being Gentiles and you're growing up in, in the Christian church and you don't have to, like, Sabbath for Jews is like full stop Sabbath. Like, you don't move a muscle. You're not doing anything. And Gentiles, like, they don't understand that concept. Jews come back, oh, no, 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 you guys are having too much fun on the Sabbath. You don't understand what the Sabbath is. Whoa, What? Who are you to tell me how to rest, right? You tell me I can't watch Netflix now because it's the Sabbath? This is bogus. I'll push back on that. So it's not just pork. This is, what this is about is about how do we live faithfully as Christians in this new kind of church that Paul is helping to start. And he, what Paul recognizes is that this kind of problem isn't going to go away. I think that's why he spends a whole chapter in Romans outlining this thing, and he repeats himself time and time again in this chapter. Because he understands that divisive churches, churches that, that find themselves in conflict with one another, they're not going to go away. He's looking at the bigger world, and he's realizing it's a big world out there, and it's going to get more and more diverse. And the Christian church had better figure out a way to live together, even though we're going to have differences of opinion. And so he builds this approach to faithful living that is essentially built upon a personal relationship with Christ. I joked about him being a postmodern thinker, but it's really amazing what he develops in this letter to the Romans. What he says is the only person that holds you accountable ultimately is Jesus Christ. The only person that holds me accountable ultimately is Jesus Christ. If God, if the relationship you have with God is leading you to do something that you believe God has approved, then why do you care what anybody else thinks? The Lord God has told you it's good. And if the Lord God has told you that something is not good and you shouldn't do it, then don't do it. It's just that simple. Just don't do it. But, but they like pork. Great. But it smells tasty. Do you think God wants you to eat some? Kind of. Then do it. <laughs> eat it. I don't think I should. Then don't. I, like, it's so simple. Well, they're, they're doing this this way. Well, I don't like that. Then don't do that. But I think I should then do it. God. The Bible really makes, we, we, we lament over how confusing the Bible can be. Paul gets pretty clear sometimes. He gets pretty clear sometimes. In the letter to the Galatians I read at the beginning, Paul references that the reason we are no longer bound to the law is because we are baptized into a relationship with Christ Jesus. And when I look at our local church, and I look at where we were 20 years ago, where we were very much a church like Rome, and we didn't know how to handle this tradition and this new cultural relevancy struggle that we were finding ourselves in. I think we made a shift about 10 to 15 years ago where we adopted a Romans 14 mindset, and the reason I say that is because we began to lift up baptism like never before, and I think baptism, the sacrament of baptism, is what saved this church and what led us into a future that we now get to benefit from. 
I think baptism is critical if you're going to have a Romans 14 mindset as a church. If you're going to make it through the fires of conflict that the church in Rome and the church in Galatia and the church here in Dallas have had to walk through. And I'll explain why in three easy points because you know I love the number three. So, number one, baptism reminds us who is on the throne. Paul says it again and again and again. Jesus says it again and again and again. It is not your job to judge. If there is one sin that I think is harder for us to let go of than any other in this life, it might be that one. It's hard for me because I'm a perfectionist. And y'all, I know every way you're screwing up your life. I do. I watch it. I see on Facebook. I see all the things you do. I'm thinking, they shouldn't be doing that. They shouldn't be doing that. That's wrong. I get it. And you're watching me. And you're watching me with my daughter. And, like, she's watched Moana at least 80 times since she's been born. And you're like, her eyes are going to fall out of her head. I get it. We love to judge each other. It's the way that we live. And we can do it more now than ever before thanks to Facebook and social media and all that good stuff. But if there's one thing that Jesus Christ says in the Gospels again and again, and there's one thing that Paul says in his letter to the Romans again and again, it's you are not on the throne. And the waters of baptism make that very clear because when we approach the waters of baptism as the one who's going to get baptized, we're asked very plainly and clearly, do you repent and confess of your sins? Do you confess of your sins? Do you repent of your sins? Now, when I'm leading someone to the waters of baptism, I don't ask them, hey, what are your sins? Will you rattle those off for me real quick? I want to make sure I get the right ones on here. We don't have them stand before the community of faith and say, hey, tell all these people what your worst sins are. We don't have that. I don't think we would have many baptisms, do you? The reason we don't do that is because we know none of us are seated on the throne of judgment. None of us are going to be the ones that any of us answer to in the end. When I approach the waters of baptism, I do so humbly and with my head bowed, knowing that I am standing before the God who is seated on the throne, who knows my worst sins and in that moment wipes me clean of them. Now, I'll tell you this. I went back and forth as to whether or not I was going to say this, but I'm going to tell you this because we've agreed after Romans 14 that we're allowed to disagree with each other. So you might hear your pastor say some things that you might disagree with this morning, and that's okay. I disagree with myself all the time. I have walked gay men and women into the waters of baptism here at Lover's Lane. I've done it many times. Two things. Number one... I'm amazed that they made it there because I know their story, and I've had dinner with these people. I've broken bread with people I now call friends. I've heard the stories of being kicked out of homes and being called the worst names you can imagine by the people who are supposed to love you the most. I've heard stories of being beaten and burned and left for dead. And I've heard stories of the church saying all those things are their fault. Who am I to judge that person when they make it to the waters of baptism? If that was my story, y'all, I'm, I'm a vengeful person. I would not be here today. There are people in this church who inspire your pastor because they have gotten literally beaten and bruised. By loved ones, and they have been figuratively beaten and bruised by the church, and here they still stand. Who am I, and who are you to judge any of them? 
Secondly, when I walked them into the waters of baptism, I asked them to confess and repent their sins. And I'll tell you right now, never once did I think that they were confessing who they loved in that moment of confession. And you might disagree with me on that. And you might think that's wrong. But I'll tell you, (laughs) I know these people. I've broken bread with these people. I know their story. I know their hurts. I know their loves. I know what they're confessing in those waters. And who they love is not on the list, and I wouldn't have it any other way. Okay, that's what i got to say about that. The reason I wouldn't have it any other way is because if I begin to judge someone who's walking in the waters of baptism, if I begin to judge them and, and wonder which sins are they really listing off. Last week we talked about the norm in our life. We talked about the norm, the measuring sticks that we used. And we said if we're going to move to a position where we can celebrate all cultures and all peoples, We have to no longer be the norm in our life. We have to allow God to be the norm instead. At the waters of baptism, we have to confront in a real, powerful way that we are not the norm. You are not the norm. Your faith is not the norm. Your marriage is not the norm. The way you love is not the norm. You know who the norm is? Christ is the norm. Christ's faith is the norm. Christ's love is the norm. If you would have that no other way, say amen. Y'all got quiet on me for there a little bit, so I need to know that you're still with me. We have got to step down from the judgment seat if we are going to take baptism seriously. We cannot baptize people into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ and judge them at the same time. It does not work that way. Number two, baptism reminds us who is at work. Stan loves to say, it's our job to catch them and God's job to clean them. Stan, I hope you heard that. That is my best impression of your East Texas. <laughs> it is not my job or your job to change your brother or sister in Christ. It is my job and your job to encourage a relationship with Christ. In the waters of baptism, we recognize that that person is entering into a relationship with Jesus Christ, and that is going to take them where that takes them. Our job is not to create a new law 2.0. You know what I mean by that? Our job is not to make a new rule list of all the things you got to do if you want to be a good Christian at Lover's Lane. That's not how it works. You know, when I'm, when I'm downloading apps or whatever, I always see those user agreements. Y'all see the user agreements? Anybody ever read those things, a.k.a. do we have any lawyers in the room? The lawyers are like, oh, heck yeah, I read every last bit of that. I haven't bought a phone in 20 years. I'm not signing away my identity to anybody. Imagine if we had a user agreement for the Christian church. Oh, what would that sound like? Here we go. Let's look it up. I got it up on the screens for you, but I'll read it for you if you can't read because it's so small. By agreeing to abide by the Christian faith, this user agrees to the following. To wake up by 4 a.m. every morning, spend an hour in prayer, spend an hour reading scripture, read the whole Bible once every six weeks, eat a healthy breakfast, including but not limited to two farm fresh eggs, two slices of turkey bacon, turkey bacon, no pork, and one short stack of gluten-free pancakes. Lunch will be a light salad with a vinaigrette, and dinner will include farm-raised meat and organic fruits and vegetables, and dessert will be tasty but not inspire gluttony. User will be married and ha- with two and a half children, a golden doodle, and a Chevy Tahoe. The user... We'll devote their time in the following ways. User will be full-time worker, full-time parent, evangelize their neighborhood, mow their own grass, 
Volunteer at least one day a week and maintain a weekly Sabbath. User will excel at outgoing social engagement and personal reflection. User will not be indebted to anyone or anything. User will tithe to the church, save for retirement, and give to anyone who asks. User will boast only in the Lord, exude all the fruits of the Spirit, uphold all ten commandments, abide by the laws of the state, achieve perfection while remaining perfectly humble. User will never curse, never drink, never dominate conversation, never speak ill of another, never gossip, never fight, never go to sleep angry, never tell inappropriate jokes, and certainly never laugh at them. User will abide by all agreements listed above, and if ever found to be outside the user agreement, user will be cast aside and made mockery of by the other users in good standing. Y'all want to sign on the dotted line? Anybody want to click accept? Thank you, Sam. Sam, we all aspire to your level of sainthood, my friend. Maybe the user agreement could sound like this. Do you renounce the spiritual forces of wickedness, reject the evil powers of this world, and repent of your sin? Maybe it could sound like this. Do you accept the freedom and power God gives you to resist evil, injustice, and oppression in whatever forms they present themselves? Maybe it could sound like this. Do you confess Jesus Christ as your Savior, put your whole trust in his grace, and promise to serve him as your Lord in union with the church, which Christ has opened to people of all ages, nations, and races. Maybe that's a user agreement we ought to get used to. It's in the hymnal. <laughs> Lastly, baptism, and I know I'm going long, I don't even care. Baptism asks us to trust in the relationship with Christ. When we made the shift about 10 years, 15 years ago to emphasize baptism, we also adopted a mission statement that we all know by heart, loving all people in a relationship with Jesus Christ. That mission statement is there for a reason. Loving all people into the right kind of Christian. Loving all people into my kind of Christian. Sam, it's loving all people into relationship with Christ. That's right. Sam gets it. Do you get it? Loving all people into relationship with Jesus Christ through the waters of baptism, we were able to shift our thinking and no longer dictate our church based upon some list of rules that we thought needed to be in place. Instead, we, we gave ourselves over to trust in the relationship with Christ that each and every one of us has individually. And that leads us to be a very diverse community of faith that leads us into places that we may not have expected. But you know what? I think it's the fact that we allow for such an eclectic church that we allow for a church where you can be as far right wing or as far left wing as you want. We got Trumpers and we got Bernie with their hair on fire in this church. I wouldn't have it any other way. Because what happens when you get all those kinds of people together, when you get people from Africa and people from downtown Dallas in the same place, really cool things happen and hearts begin to change. There was a testimony that was submitted on Facebook by one of our members recently. You know, people, I'll be, I'll be asked sometimes, you know, Lover's Lane is an inclusive church. Why is it not more of an activist church? Why aren't y'all out there, you know, yelling more? Why, why aren't you protesting? Why aren't you more of an activist church? And the reason that we're not is because we do things a little bit differently because we believe that this needs to be a church for all people, and we mean all. We mean people who aren't where we are yet. We mean people who disagree with you. We mean people who disagree with you on a deep level. This is a church where we want transformed lives to be possible, and the way we do that is by not shouting and yelling. And, and I saw a testimony recently that was good to see because it confirmed in me the work that this church is about. 
She says this, my stance on gay marriage was always very negative. My opinion was that marriage was a word in the English language defined as a contract between one man and one woman, revocable only in the case of abuse or other mistreatment. Marriage was forever a covenant ordained and blessed by God. As such, changing that definition was not something I could myself do. It's kind of like saying the word apple must now contain references to grapes or bananas just because someone else decided that the definition must change. They're just not the same thing, which is why we have other words for those fruits. But, she says, in the last several years, my mind has been changed on this. Many of my friends are gay or lesbian, and none of them has ever slammed me in the face with their stance on the issue. Instead, they have all lived a, quote, life that becomes the gospel before me. Bill and Nick, Barbara and Elaine have made a unique and beautiful life for their children. Melinda and Adri are just beginning on their journey with their twins. Tim and Nikki are amazingly supportive of each other's endeavors in all areas of their lives and have loved each other for many years. I want to thank all of them for living a life of love, respect, and care before me as an example of how things ought to be in the world. Because of them and their example, my mind was changed. Now, I know this person. She's got strong opinions about a lot of things. And she wasn't going to change her mind because someone yelled at her enough. Her mind was changed because she came to a church like Lover's Lane where she was able to witness families with two dads and two moms, love their kids and love each other. And she saw Christ in that relationship. That's a powerful thing. This church has powerful things happening in it today, and we're going to have powerful things happening in it for years to come. And about 20 years ago, we were like the church in the Rome and the church in Galatia. We were conflicted, and we didn't know what to do. So what we did is we began to trust completely, radically, dangerously in the individual's relationship with Jesus Christ. We made this church all about that. And it's changed us, and I dare say it's changed us for good. When we adopted the mission statement, loving all people in a relationship with Jesus Christ, we made a shift as a congregation to adopt a Romans 14 mentality. We don't want a congregation of clones. I don't want you to look like me or talk like me. Stan doesn't want me to talk like him either. He hates my fake accent. We want a congregation full of Jews and Greeks, women and men, black, white and brown, gay and straight, married and divorced, dating and single, young and old, Republican and Democrat and Green Party and Libertarian and Independent and anybody else. We can build a church full of these people because not one of those labels defines us. Amen? What defines us first, last, and always is the name of Jesus Christ the gospel of a Savior who lived and died for our sins, and the faith we find in a loving God who shapes us in our mother's womb, guides us to the waters of baptism, and leads us into the lives of faith that, while radically different at times, are all centered around the cross and the throne. Does that sound like you? Does that sound like a church you want to be a part of? That's a church I want to be a part of. That's a church that Reagan and I are proud to be pastors at. And we are proud to raise our daughter in so that she will never, a single day in her life, wonder if her church and her friends and her family loves her. For that, I'm thankful, and I'm going to stop talking. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, gracious God, God who is with us in the peaks and the valleys of life, who guides us to the waters of baptism and leads us in a life of faith afterwards. We are thankful for the example of your son, Jesus Christ. We are thankful 
for the reality of a relationship with him. We are thankful for the ways in which you lead us, guide us, and direct us. God, help us to step down from the thrones of judgment. Instead, allow us to walk humbly in your will and trust that our brothers and sisters are doing so as well. God bless this church. God bless the work you are doing here. Amen.